The architecture of the Jeffersonian ideal of a strong, independent, virtuous, agrarian, and white nation, where its citizens can find security and self-sufficiency as yeoman farmers, is well known and still broadly taught. An empire without a powerful metropolis or an aristocratic ruling class, as Peter Onuf writes. It's become a signature motif of American history, and it maintains a grip on the people to this day. The antithesis is traditionally Alexander Hamilton, of course, but as mentioned, the blurring of enterprise and yeoman farming with chattel slavery makes the binaries less rigid. Jefferson was an optimist when it came to the people. He wrote James Madison, quote, Our governments will remain virtuous as long as they are chiefly agricultural, and this will be as long as there shall be vacant lands in any part of America, end quote. Of course, vacant lands are doing the heavy lifting here. Before we can discuss the lands, we must talk about who resides on them. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere. That's social media, Patreon if you want to support our little show, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, Episode Jefferson 5, As Long As There Shall Be Vacant Lands. Notes on the state of Virginia is many things, but mainly it's a response to a questionnaire from Francois Barbet Marbois, as well as a refutation of Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon's notion that the nature of North America, that is, the plant, animal, and human life, was degenerate compared to Europe. From today's vantage point, this seems ridiculous, and the story of Jefferson's procuring a moose descended across the ocean to Buffon, who agreed to retract his theory only for him to die before correcting his text, is emblematic and a pretty good aside, but it's for another day. However, more concerning and relevant is the shared belief in the exaltation of human progress and civilization, where nature becomes, according to Maurizio Valsania, quote, the enemy of the human being, a force to be subjugated and transformed, and which threatens to reassert its primordial power, end quote. That only white men could take part in this civilizing aspect hardly needs to be stated. As Donald Jackson notes, quote, blacks were a part of the American scene through historic accident, while Indians were a part of the natural order, end quote. In contrast, writing to his friend, the Marquis de Chasteloup, four days after giving a ledger of Connecticut money, Jefferson wrote that Indians are, quote, in body and mind equal to the white man, end quote. Though, to be completely fair to Jefferson, if he needs such a thing, the full text is, quote, I believe the Indian then to be in body and mind equal to the white man. I have supposed the black man in his present state might not be so, but it would be hazardous to affirm that, equally cultivated for a few generations, he would not become so, end quote. As we touched on with La Perouse in our last mile marker, the idea of native peoples being natural republicans who submitted to no one and weren't corrupted by civilization was wrapped up in the noble savage trope, which despite Jefferson's esteem for Native Americans, like his disdain for slavery, it was mostly conceptual. He writes less of a defense of the Indian than an ethnography of his childhood fascinations to his proto-archaeological digs at the mounds in his neighborhood in Virginia. To Jefferson, the Indian, quote, 
meets death with more deliberation and endures tortures with a firmness unknown almost to religious enthusiasm with us. That he is affectionate to his children, careful of them, and indulgent in the extreme. That his affections comprehend his other connections, weakening, as with us, from circle to circle, as they recede from the center. That his friendships are strong and faithful to the utmost extremity. That his sensibility is keen, even the warriors weeping most bitterly on the loss of their children. End quote. One of the more famous passages in his only published work was his marveling at the eloquence of a 1774 speech by Mingo Chief, Logan, who we'll meet soon enough. After his family was murdered, he was quoted as saying, This called on me for revenge. I have sought it. I have killed many. I have fully glutted my vengeance. For my country I rejoice at the beams of peace. But do not harbor a thought that mine is the joy of fear. Logan never felt fear. He will not turn on his heel to save his life. Who is there to mourn for Logan? Not one. End quote. Crucially, Jefferson sidesteps his own co-signing of why Logan's family got killed in the first place. Two years after Logan's speech, a month after the Declaration of Independence, where he had a whole section on the merciless Indian savages, least we forget, and they became savage only because of English deprivations that will in no way be used in continuation of a war into the next decade or so of when our story takes place. No, he writes to his friend, quote, nothing will reduce these wretches so soon as pushing the war into the heart of their country. But I would not stop there. I would never cease pursuing them while one of them remained on this side of the Mississippi. So unprovoked an attack and so treacherous a one should never be forgiven while one of them remains near enough to do us injury." End quote. And there is the stark contradiction that we're going to see played out again and again as we get closer to the Missouri, and why it's so hard to pin down Jefferson completely on almost anything. While we'll never really know if his paternalism, that is, the whites as the fathers and the natives as the children, addressed as such in councils and treaties, was just a continuation of tradition, or if he genuinely believed this. He would advocate in writing for natives to marry whites and mix their bloodlines. It's easier to understand if we see that it's obviously a little bit of both. He certainly knew that the fledgling United States was as powerless to stop waves of white migrants as Britain was, so endorsing a reservation west of the Mississippi and tasking poor Lewis with looking into its feasibility while he was wintering in St. Louis made sense. Yet moving them by treaties and violence, if necessary, as would be out west after the Civil War, coincidentally opens up tons of land. If he really believed that there would be space for our descendants to the thousandth and thousandth generation, and if Native Americans were a part of those generations, it's up to you, I suppose. Slavery is a dying institution and ending any day now, remember? We'll get more specific when we finally meet William Henry Harrison and counsel with the Otto and the Missouri next August. In the end, assimilationist rhetoric coupled with treaties purchasing lands followed by their own westward migration over the Mississippi is what we got. Without a European power to prop up Native America, Jefferson thought, they would fade out of or into American society in no time. As Anthony F.C. Wallace writes, quote, by mourning the passing of the Indians into oblivion or civilized invisibility, 
gave moral justification to the seizures of lands he said they no longer needed. End quote. As we'll see with the Louisiana Purchase, the size and scope of the country was a preoccupation of the early republic. The idea of a large republic being an oxymoron is an idea that we still see espoused today. And while nothing is inevitable, any desire or attempt to limit white migration to the West in the late 18th, early 19th century never happened. Instead, through acts like the Northwest Ordinance, the idea was to bring order to fears of aristocratic and speculative intentions. One way to do this was through a strong, centralized federal government that could have met the Indian nations on a singular, consistent footing. The other would be where states managed land purchases as they came, unique to each treaty. Inconsistency would be a given, but it didn't have to be for the worse, as certain clauses or annuities or whatever that worked for one nation may not work for another. The way we got was the middle of the road. The United States government, first confederated, then federal, was effectively junior partner to the territorial governments that had the right to enact treaties. However, by maintaining the final word on anything coming from the territories, all treaties made by the territories were effectively non-binding, and like Schrodinger's cat, if a treaty is non-binding and binding at the same time, can it really be broken? You'll notice that I'm saying territories instead of states. Statehood is something that came for a territory after hitting certain benchmarks, sometimes. But part of this middle road option was predicated on the original 13 colonies turned states relinquishing their colonial land claims, some of which, like Virginia, went all the way to the Pacific, and setting their borders, mainly to avoid land scandals that had plagued the era, which we'll talk about a lot more as we get down the Ohio, but we're looking at you, Georgia. As Peter Onuf writes, quote, For it was only by ignoring the indigenous peoples that the American states could assert their collective claims against the other sovereignties of the world and simultaneously reconcile their own conflicting claims without asking a dangerous concentration of power in Congress. End quote. Instead of any meaningful counterweight, the government, to Jefferson and beyond, let's be honest, co-signed territorial sovereignty and went to war to force it. In a weaker government, the losses of Harmar and St. Clair could have stalled this project and altered forever their trajectory into our own time. But the desire for land and the idea that it was won by conquest in a war for independence transcended all preoccupations with standing armies or finances or the size of the republic. The tribe which shall begin an unprovoked war against us, Jefferson told the Wyandot, Ottawa, Chippewa, Potawatomi and Shawnee near the end of his presidency, three years after Lewis and Clark had returned, quote, we will extirpate from the earth or drive to such a distance that they shall never again be able to strike us, end quote. The Potawatomi had heard this all the previous year from their own affectionate father, along with the Osage, Missouri, Kansas, Otto, Pawnee, Sac and Fox, Iowa, and the Sioux, quote, it was not till the Treaty of Greenville that we could come to a solid place and perfect good understanding with our Indian neighbors. This being done in fixed lines drawn between them and us, laying off their lands to themselves and ours to ourselves, so that each might know their own and nothing disturb our future peace, 
We have, from this moment, my children, looked upon you heartily as our brothers and as part of ourselves. We saw that your game was becoming too scarce to support you, and that unless we could persuade you to cultivate the earth, to raise the tame animals, and to spin and weave clothes for yourselves as we do, you would disappear from the earth. End quote. This was all starting to sound more and more like a threat. The discovery of the continent, Jefferson thought, should not be carried out by lawless traders, settlers, or speculators, Landon Jones writes in his biography on William Clark, quote, nor should natural scientists or geographers lead the way. The task of securing an empire should be entrusted to military men, equipped to gather scientific and geographical information, but ready to impose their will on anyone, natives or Europeans, who try to stop them. Army surveyors could then lay out a grill work of sections of 640 acres, a square mile, to await the orderly arrival of farmers, end quote. Jefferson's orderly arrival never came, but in the meantime, by hook or by crook, the Jefferson administration prepared for that day. Three days after the landmark decision in Marbury versus Madison and the Supreme Court carving out a place for itself that would, in time, through judicial review, consent to the constitutionality of American settler colonialism. Jefferson wrote William Henry Harrison, governor of Indiana Territory, known popularly as the ninth president who talked too long at his inauguration and died of pneumonia a month into office. Our system is to live in perpetual peace with the Indians, Jefferson assures Harrison, who has undoubtedly heard this spiel before. Jefferson continues, quote, to promote this disposition to exchange lands which they have to spare and we want for necessities which we have to spare and they want, we shall push our trading houses and be glad to see the good and influential individuals among them run into debt. Because we observe that when these debts get beyond what the individuals can pay, they become willing to lop them off by a session of lands. In this way, our settlements will gradually circumscribe and approach the Indians, and they will in time either incorporate with us as citizens of the U.S. or remove beyond the Mississippi. The former is certainly the termination of their history, most happy for themselves. But in the whole course of this, it is essential to cultivate their love." End quote. 